Hello, in this fourth episode of our 10-part series on how to survive and prosper the COVID-19 crisis, we're going to be tackling scaling operating costs. If you missed our previous episodes, I strongly recommend that you listen to them first. Uh, one, plan to survive. Our second one was on customer confidence and how to become a partner rather than just a supplier. And in our most recent and third episode, we talked about suppliers themselves and how to restructure your relationship with your existing suppliers, because after all, they want to stay in business too. But Simon Littlewood, saving operating costs is probably the one subject that nobody really wants to talk about. Yes. Um, it's, it's the most difficult. You know, uh, there have been a number of crises in Asia over the last decades. And one of the features of those crises is that people don't necessarily want to make tricky decisions quickly. But the reality is it's very clear, sitting where we are now, that we've had a dramatic reduction in economic activity across most business sectors, and that it will be some time before that comes back. And by some time, I mean it will be surprising if we're back to January levels of activity in a year from now. That would be a sensible estimation. So you need to scale operating costs and you need to do it without delay because as long as you are spending more money than you're earning in revenue, capital is flowing out of the business and you're getting into a poor, poorer and poorer state. So there are five things that we recommend that you do. The first one, is cut costs to a survivable worst case level. Now, you may recall that in the first podcast, we talked about plan to survive. We said, make a plan based on a worst case estimate, not on hoping for the best or thinking that everything's gonna be back to normal in six weeks. And I'm still reading this. I'm still reading on social media very widely that some people think, well, in a month or so, we'll come out of our isolation and everything will be back to normal. It won't. The, slot, the shocks to the global supply chain will take at least a year. So uh, cut costs to a survivable worst case level. So having established what your worst case revenue scenario is going to be, establish what you need to do to get your costs down to a level where you can at least cover your costs and ideally make some kind of return. How to do that? Well, there are four things. First, shed discretionary spend. Discretionary spend like consulting, like PR, uh, and of course, travel, which in any case has disappeared pretty much for most people. These are things that you can very quickly get rid of. Uh, end non-core contracts with service providers. Um, that is nothing, that is stuff that you don't need to run your business day to day. Yeah? And the third and the toughest, reduce headcount early, do not delay. I'm reading a lot about how you should give people half pay, how you should cover their costs, how even how the state should cover their costs. Well, the reality is that if you're a business, if you're not in business, you can't employ anybody. And if you go on paying for people that you cannot fund from your business activity, then you're going to run out of money. So take, bite the bullet, figure out what you need to do to align your operating costs to your actual level of revenue. And one big area is likely to be reducing headcount. Now in reducing headcount, um, there are a number of things that you should bear in mind. First of all, who can best help you to hang on to customers? There'll be individuals who are critical to maintaining customer relationships. And this is linked to what we said in our second podcast, which is use the 80-20 rule to figure out the top 20% of customers that are going to deliver future economic value. And we suggested that you do that. 
using customer lifetime value. And if you don't know what that is, perhaps go back and listen to the second podcast or contact us. Who can best help you hang on to customers now in your commercial organization? Give them priority. Who will be critical to your future once growth returns? So based on your estimate of future economic activity, what skills do you need in your commercial and other parts of your organization? And you may find if you take a prudent view of the market that you may find that not just your customer set, but your product set might evolve over time. So bear that in mind. Thirdly, act quickly to shed part-time non-essential staff. This is a tough one, but there are lots of things you can do here. Do it quickly. Fourthly, don't be afraid to ask staff that you keep on to take on more. They will be glad to have a job. They will understand that the business is under pressure and they need to step up. And if they don't, frankly, they're the wrong people. Finally, the message to your people is that we are in it together. We are in it together. And the funny thing is that the best way to get this message across is to make decisions on headcount early so that you quickly are in a situation where the people you've got in the business are the people that are likely to stay. The reason it's important to do it early is because if you simply encounter one stress after another and let different people go every month, you're never going to be able to rebuild morale because people are going to spend their entire lives in a state of fear. Do what you need to do quickly, keep those that you need to keep, and then build confidence. And we'll talk a little bit later about how you can do that, but the key thing is to have the right people. And finally, so, and yeah, Mark. Sorry, Simon, to, to, to jump in, but I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't challenge you on some of these points. So yeah. let's take it back to the very first one about uh, right-sizing for the revenue that you expect. Yeah, yeah. Right now, it's still just a couple of weeks into the, um, into the lockdown, and most people are probably justifying to themselves that, well, you know, we did have a good month back in uh, January or perhaps even February. We can probably just wait and see. And perhaps in May or June, once the situation stabilizes in whatever format that may be, then we can talk about right-sizing. So should you take the current level of revenue, which is obviously very close to zero, unless you're in an essential service, really as the, uh, as the yardstick to measure your right-sized costs? Well, I'm careful about specifying particular instances because every single business is different. But the reality is, if you carry on operating with a level of cost that you have to subsidize, i.e. that isn't being paid for by revenue, you are significantly reducing your options over time. And when we come to the second set of podcasts, which are all about using your leanness and your adaptability to grow in the future, once things start to get better, you're going to lose a significant opportunity to do that because all the money would have left the company. So uh, you ask a fair question and you put your finger on something that many businesses are reluctant to do, which is to act quickly based on a worst case scenario. I'm afraid I would advocate that you do that. And it doesn't help that there's a confusion in today's world between the primary purpose of business, which is to generate economic value, and the notion that there is a social responsibility to keep people, to subsidize people, and so on and so forth. I don't mean to be inappropriate. If a business is not making money, it will not survive and nobody will be employed. So your primary role, the primary responsibility, if you're responsible for a business, is to ensure that your business survives and to make those hard decisions now, however tough they may be. Yeah. Um, okay, which then gets me on to the second point, which you mentioned, which 
said discretionary spending. Uh, and unfortunately, by discretionary, you're, you're really nailing the problem that people like to spend some of this money, isn't it? Um, for example, um, let's talk about PR, for example, which you isolated or identified as one of those areas to be cut. There is an argument that says that it's precisely when nobody else is advertising that you should be. I don't because that's, the, when your audience, that's when your audience is actually receptive to messages. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to have the PR industry come after me. Uh, clearly, you have to communicate to the market. Um, I see an overspend in the area of PR, and I see it as non-core. There's a lot that PR does that you can actually do yourself. I'm sorry, sorry to my friends in PR, but that's the truth. Um, and that is not a core requirement. What you communicate and what you don't communicate should primarily be focused on your customers and your suppliers and your staff. Yeah? Of course, if you are in a consumer brand situation where you have a high level of visibility, you maybe need to do more. But for most businesses, particularly B2B businesses, you know, uh, marketing and PR are secondary activities. Yeah? Okay. And so what are some of the other discretionary expenditure type of examples that you can think of? You've mentioned travel already. And as you correctly said, nobody really is doing any travel at the moment. Um, but what might be other examples of discretionary spend? Well, um, you know, uh, other than PR and marketing, uh, a lot of companies hire advisors of one kind or another um, to come in and do stuff. Uh, you need to look at um, support from contractors and others. Anyone that you do not have a formal obligation to should go. Those that you have a formal obligation to, that is a full-time commitment, you have to reduce them to an appropriate level, but you have to do that on a much more rational basis. The, okay. the, the discretionary spend is the first thing that goes, and I know that only too well as a business advisor, yeah? Yes, indeed. Well, okay, well, what about the water cooler or the soda machine? Is that a contract that you would cancel at this time? Um, well, uh, it depends how much water you've got. But given that none of us can actually go into the office, um, I guess that's kind of moot, isn't it? Um, uh, but you raise a good question. Those staff that you keep have to be looked after. So be very careful. Uh, you know, when I, when I present on this topic, um, one of the slides that I put up says, quote, a 34% cut in our corporate ethics should return us to profitability. Just to, <laughs> Uh, because does it? The, well but the point that i'm making is that when you determine what you should or should not cut it's not sentimentality that should drive it affection for a particular supporter or, or employee it should be hard business reality and in a world where there's increasing exposure to regulatory requirements which can lead to huge fines then your corporate compliance is something that you might want to continue to fund and it's a digression, but if you look at what's happening in banking, they are letting compliance people go in large numbers and they're almost certainly going to pay the price for that, that at the end. So the, the line between what you can get rid of and what you can't get rid of is to do with risk and growth. Yeah. So, um, so, 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 so use those criteria. Yeah? Um, I'm conscious that we have one more item, uh, which, which I haven't covered. Um, if you'll allow In fact, me. I think we have two. No, I, I won't allow you because I, I want to pluck this apart a little bit more, okay, especially okay. when it comes to, the, to, uh, to shedding staff. And you've already identified <clears throat> some of the, the part-timers uh, uh, and so on. And you've also said that uh, certainly governments are stepping in in many countries uh, in order to continue to pay wage bills so that you don't have to cut staff. Um, isn't that a good thing, though, for you as a company? Doesn't that take the pressure off 
where you can then say, okay, well, if the government's going to pay anywhere between 25 and 75% of, of salaries, why do I need to cut no, well, I think that that's, that's not the thinking that I would encourage. I think that the secret of dramatic shocks like this is that you have an opportunity to reinvent yourself in a fundamental way. And when we come on to talk about how you can take the opportunity that you've given yourself by acting quickly to stem the bleeding and to convert that into aggressive growth, one of the things that you need to look at is how you've built the right team, how you've generated sufficient cash, and how you have spent your time looking at what's going on in the marketplace in order to be in a position to act quickly. Now, if you hang on to people because the government's paying them, uh, because th th and that's not a business reason for hanging on to people, you know? Uh, by all means, take the government money, but look at this from a business perspective. Um, there's a whole other topic there on whether it's really the business of governments to, to support businesses. After all, they're spending taxpayers' money. Um, you know, my view is that a business either makes money or it doesn't make money. And if it can't make money, you have to make the appropriate decisions to survive. Yeah? But these um, are extenuating circumstances. Surely it's a good thing that governments are stepping in and at least bridging the gap for the foreseeable future, right? Well, they're not because they have no idea what the foreseeable future is, just as they underestimated, massively underestimated the impact of COVID-19. So they are completely unable to tell us how long it's likely to last. So if you go into this on the basis that somebody else is going to help you out, woe betide you. What I would do is I would take the action and take the money too. Yeah. Well, you can't do both because if you let go of stuff, there, there will be no salary subsidy, isn't there? I sense this is dear to your heart, Mark, but, you know, that's my view. Um, I, um, there will be so many... So there. Many... <laughs> yeah, no. No, it's, it's a, partly an ideological thing because over time, this notion that somehow governments are responsible for keeping business healthy has really crept into our lexicon. You know, 30 years ago, this, this kind of conversation would be baffling. Now it seems to be absolutely normal. Now we have Western governments worldwide working out how much money they should use to prime the pump, not just for small companies, but for huge ones, massive automobile manufacturing companies, aeroplane manufacturing companies, banks, insurance companies, companies that have billions of dollars or did have billions of dollars in sales. Uh, this kind of state in intervention is something, well, we're getting off the track here, but it's not healthy and it's not sustainable, bottom line. Well, um, actually, it's a very interesting conversation. And, and I, I just want to continue it for just a few moments, Simon. Yeah. Um, because, you know, for many, uh, uh, you, you mentioned car manufacturers, for example. Um, you know, the reason why governments are very keen to subsidize the, the staff there so that they don't cut people is because inevitably those employees are also voters. And when it next comes the the the, the, the vote in Europe, I'm thinking of Germany in particular and the car manufacturing industry there, then you could very well argue, well, you guys didn't look after us during the COVID issue, so we're now going to vote for the opposition. Um, right. So I mean, it's, I it's, there, there is well, seemingly some rationale, some political rationale for funding jobs. Well, I mean, what you're saying is if, uh, if the government gives people back their own money, because this is all taxpayers' money, or they borrow money, which is what they're doing by printing money, uh, so that our children and our children's children have to pay it back, that, that will make them electable. I, you know, if that, that is not a politics that I particularly like. You're certainly describing a situation that more and more is happening. And what's sad is that even, even governments on the right that have in the past eschewed this kind of intervention are now finding that they have to go down this path. I, I don't think we'll solve this issue, but my instinct is that, for example, where you have deprivation 
as a consequence of the economic downturn, then you need to mobilize social forces to support those people. And that governments have very limited roles or should have very limited roles in that. Um, a slightly old fashioned view, but, um, but I think you'll find that when you, when you project the interventions of government over potentially a year or longer, you're looking at a significant change in the economic situation of many Western countries um, to yes. the detriment in, of those com of those companies. Countries, yeah. In, in, in uh, fact, I was reading the other day that somebody's even forecasting that there will be a model of communism that will emerge from all of this. Well, I, you know, I didn't want to use that word, but that's what you're talking about. Because when you massively subsidize large companies, you then have a right to say what they do or do not do in terms of hiring people, not hiring people. And yes, you're, that is... That is state intervention on a level that would be recognizably normal in a centrally operated economy, like a totalitarian country, either a left-wing or right-wing country, where the economy is controlled. And, you know, I don't think that that's a very good way to go. And I think what we're looking at when you argue for compensating people near term, it's short-term political expediency over the long-term health of individuals and society. You know, wealthy societies in the West have the resources at a private level to support people in their local communities who have challenges. Um, the notion that you can somehow, even in a normal situation uh, where there isn't COVID virus, spend money to make people happy is, is not a notion that I'm very comfortable with. And that seems to have got completely out of hand now. Um, boy, this is a bit of a detour, isn't it? Um, no, but I, I'm, I'm greatly enjoying it. And one last point on, on staff mm -hmm. before I finally let you get through to the last two points of how to ensure that your operating costs are sustainable into the future. And, and that is uh, this idea of furloughing. You know, when I first heard of furloughing, I looked at my rabbits and wondered what the heck they were talking about. And it turns out that furlough simply means that you kind of put staff on, on, on ice for a while, right? In other words, you send them home without pay and then you say, uh, you're hereby furloughed, uh, we'll call you when we need you. Is, is that a better way than to kind of hand people the pink slip and say sayonara, Jim? Uh, well, we and have, please we, don't come back. We tried to aim these, these podcasts at mainly at small and medium-sized enterprises. If you're a very large company and you've got a lot of people, then clearly there are options for reducing your operating costs that are short of letting people go. Probably there will be people who you want to let go because if you have a large organization, there'll be people who aren't performing, who you might tolerate in a situation of rapid growth, but in a situation of rapid contraction, you might want to get rid of. But secondary to that, there are ways of retaining skills but not spending so much money. And actually, as it happens, I've been, I've been furloughed myself when I worked for a very large consulting company. What they did was they reduced uh, monthly salary to about a third of what it normally was on the basis that they could call you back at one week's notice and that they would keep you for a certain period of time uh, on furlough or on retention, if you like. Um, I quite like that model because it can significantly reduce your operating costs. Um, and it keeps people interested because they're part of your virtual network. Uh, they can be called upon to do a certain limited amount of activity based on the fact that you're paying them something. And of course, if things continue to get bad, you can let them go anyway. Um, the only problem with that is, as I've said, if you're anticipating a long period of disruption, and I think we are, you might find yourself doing that and then letting people go and then letting another bunch of people go. It's going to create continuing fear and instability in your network. This is why I tend to argue in favor of dramatically cutting costs, starting to build almost from the beginning, building the team that you plan to keep back up, 
and then recognizing that there'll be a lot of people in the market that you can hire back when the time arises. And in fact, when we go on to talk about five things you can do to take advantage of the downturn to acquire market share and grow, one of the things we'll talk about is how there'll be opportunities to go out and hire, hire better people. Um, but that's for next time. Yep. Okay. Well, in the meantime, you've got two other points that you wanted to make in relation to the, the five must-dos when it comes to operating costs. And, and one of them, uh, quite surprisingly, is actually more about growth than cutting. Uh, do you mean leverage scalable automation? Um, yes. In other well, words, to, to actually position yourself for much lower operating costs, not just now, but into the future. Well, this is an opportunity that has arisen because of the evolving nature of technology. You know, 20 years ago, uh, when I was helping to build ERP projects, um, it was the case that when you wanted to, to develop new automation in-house, you had to buy very expensive kit. It took a couple of years in some cases to implement significant changes and it was colossally expensive. Now, of course, we have an awful lot of capability available on the cloud on a scalable basis from suppliers who themselves have seen a huge or are seeing a huge drop in their revenue and are therefore likely to be flexible. So it's well worth selectively, and I do use the word selective because one of the problems with buying information technology is people tend to get seduced by Father Christmas telling them that the answer to all their problems uh, is in an application. It seldom is. But the answer to some of your problems could be in applications that enable you to do transactional activities more cheaply, communicate more cheaply. I mean, a very simple example of automation that's going to continue to reduce costs after the shutdown is, of course, something like Zoom, which is massively grown in its adoption. And I noticed, incidentally, I looked at the website the other day, they've more than doubled their rates um, for, 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 for acquiring Zoom. It doesn't really surprise me. So, you know, there's an example of automation that you can use now that reduces your costs and will continue to reduce them after the lockdown because people will have discovered the hard way that they can actually do a lot of the things that they thought they needed to do face-to-face -face online. But that's just the beginning. There are a ton of other things you can do in relation to the customer interface, in relation to reducing your KYC, know your customer risk, um, in reducing and improving financial crime compliance. There are a bunch of things that you can selectively do that you can probably do relatively cheaply that will reduce risk, cost less. And you should absolutely, if you've done the other things and you've got cash, you should absolutely look at those things now. Yeah. Okay. And then the final of those uh, five points uh, is, uh, is obviously in relation to the borrowings that you have. So you've already said that you should shed your discretionary spending. What should you do about your borrowings? Well, it, again, it's very difficult. It's very dangerous to generalize. But for example, if we're talking about SMEs, we know, do we not, that many of the lenders to SMEs report that 40% or even more of applications that they receive to, to borrow money, often to fund working capital, are turned down because they do not have enough information or they do not have confidence in the company that's trying to borrow the money. Well, if you can come up with a sensible plan to survive along the lines of the one that we described in our first podcast, feel free to go back and listen to that, um, so that you can then communicate to your people, to your customers and to your suppliers that you are taking the action necessary to survive. And if you can do that in a very transparent way, so you can show, for example, who your key customers are, how you're getting closer to them, how you're ensuring that cash flow is managed, same with suppliers. These are things served up in the right way that potential borrowers really like. So I'm not counseling that getting more into debt is necessarily the answer, 
But if you do the things that we're recommending in the right way, you'll find that you have access to funds that you may not have had access to before, which just gives you an extra little bit of latitude when it comes to getting through the downturn. Yeah. Simon, it's been a most fascinating conversation. And as always, so for you, our listeners, I'm keen to hear what your thoughts are, especially on um, the, the idea of having to let go of staff at this time. Are you ready for it? Are you really in the mood to let go of uh, perhaps even some of your longest serving but expensive staff members? As always, please drop your comments in the comments box nearby this podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter uh, at uh, Riabu LLP. And uh, we're also on Facebook. Be first in line to get paid is the name of our page there. Simon, in the fifth of our 10-part series, you're going to be talking about communications. Yes. Uh, I've, I've, I've entitled it Don't Be Shy. Um, because at the very beginning, we said plan to survive. And a very important part of all these actions that we're recommending is that they should be firmly embraced and firmly communicated. And that if you do that in the right way, you'll find that you are building confidence within your team, building confidence within the market <clears throat> and positioning yourself to move forward when things get better in a very positive way. So I'm looking forward to that fifth podcast. Don't be shy. Me too. See you then.